Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be interviewing IDSA member Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci is a world-renowned authority on infectious diseases and has served every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan. He's also led the National Institutes of Health. Today, he continues to lead as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Our guest moderator leading today's discussion is IDSA member Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for taking the time for doing this for IDSA. We're here now seven months into the pandemic. Uh, What are the lessons that you think we've learned so far? Well, Carlos, there are a lot of lessons. Uh, I think we've learned the lesson that I think we should have known from our experience with other outbreaks is that when you're dealing with a work in progress, things change. Uh, You learn things in real time as weeks and months go by. And you've got to keep an open mind that you certainly don't know the whole story in the first or the second or the third or even the fourth month. I mean, we're learning so many things about the transmissibility, about asymptomatic transmissibility, about long range chronic uh, residual effects of people who get sick, um, about the ability of droplets versus aerosols, indoor versus outdoor. Uh, there's so many things, Carlos, you know, because you're living it with us. It's, it's a work in progress. And as scientists and public health officials, we need to be humble to realize that at any given moment, there may be a lot that we still do not know. And we've got to keep an open mind to absorb all of the new information as it comes in and to put it into the appropriate context. You know, I've heard you say testing is not working and so I'm interested in your thoughts about what you see as the current problems with testing and what can we do to make testing do what it's supposed to be doing, which is identify people and then allow us to rapidly do the contact tracing so we prevent further transmission. Yeah, I think the testing, Carlos, in fairness, is getting better and better as the time goes by. But I think what we need to make sure that we do, that we can adequately and effectively do strategic testing in addition to and not in competition with surveillance testing, because people tend to get confused because one might sort of pull away resources and effort from the other, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. One of the things that still is not perfect is the time lag in some places, not all places, in some places it works well, but the time lag between when you do a test and when you get the result back, we're still hearing in some places that that's an issue. That needs to be corrected because, as you know, if the primary purpose is to definitively identify someone who's infected and do the proper identification, isolation, and contact tracing, if you have to wait several days, sometimes up to five to seven days, then it kind of obviates the underlying reason for doing the contact tracing. We're getting better at that. Hopefully, we'll get even better and better as the time goes by. The issue with surveillance, namely rapid testing or testing on the spot, whether you want to determine if you're going to let students in a university into a dorm, whether you want to let workers into a factory, whether you want to determine the penetrance into your society, your county, your city, your state, 
Those need to be done on a broad scale. They need to be rapid. Often they're not as sensitive as the tests that specifically take a few days to do or two days or one day or what have you, but one that can be point of care. When we get to that, we can have sort of two types of testings. Those in which you very accurately want to know a person is infected so you can do the proper channeling of resources for contact tracing, and others when you want to know a little bit more about what the level of infection is in the community. What do you think are the realistic hopes that we will have a widely disseminated home sort of point of care testing in the near future? Carlos, there's no reason why we should not have it in the near future. I know, I mean, you know, and I know there are companies that are already working on those kind of strip tests that they're trying to make A, widely available and sensitive enough that they're really applicable to asking the question, am I or is everyone in this group infected or not? If you could have that, you know, available so that you would know in 10, 15 minutes or so that you could do it yourself at home, that would be a big advance. So, you know, let's move on to, to the topic of vaccines. That's something that it's, it's very hot right now. We started phase three trials. Uh, I think they're, you know, they're very exciting. Where do you see us moving with the vaccines? And when do you see we will be, you know, ready to, to really think about how do we deploy this vaccine, one or more vaccines? Let's start off with the statement, Carlos, one or more, because as you mentioned, we have at least two and soon three that will be going into phase one, uh, phase, excuse me, phase three trials. Uh, there are a number of candidates that sequentially, as we get into the fall and early winter, will also be available for phase three trial. But let's just take as an example the couple that are already in phase three trial. Uh, we know that if you look at the timetable, of the prime followed by the boost. By the time you enroll, one trial is set to enroll 30,000 people, 50-50 between placebo and experimental. Another trial is looking to do as high as 60,000 people. We should know by the end of this calendar year and maybe into the beginning of 2021, but possibly by the end of this calendar year, whether or not we have a vaccine that's safe and effective that we're confident is safe and effective. The question being, what is the probability that we'll have one that's effective? As you all know, and, and we've had a lot of experience in this, you can never guarantee the efficacy of a vaccine unless you do the clinical trial that's being done and those that are being planned. However, based on the animal data and on the early phase one data, of the immunogenicity, we feel fairly, uh, I would say, cautiously optimistic. I don't think one can say confident, but I can say cautiously optimistic that on the basis of the induction of the neutralizing antibodies to a titer that is equivalent to, and sometimes even better than plasma that is convalescent, namely someone who's recovered, that makes one cautiously optimistic that we may be able to have a vaccine that is effective. No, I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think all of us are, are really looking forward to that time when we have a vaccine and we're ready to deploy it. But obviously, as you know, we're now also facing the, the un, not to be unexpected, sort of the, the vaccine deny, denialist. This is the vaccine that already has anti-vaxxers without even before we having a vaccine. So that's another area that I think we need to be all working 
very strongly about how do we create the, the ground support for the vaccine as it comes along, right? Absolutely, Carlos. It's critical. And that's what, you know, we've done, I think, very well uh, in interventions in HIV, and that is community outreach and community engagement, to be very transparent in everything we do about the data from the trials, what we expect of it, what we're going to do, and to engage the community by people who are trusted in the community to explain the importance, not only for your own health, but for the health of your family and the rest of the world, namely the community in general, why it is important to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Yeah, without doubt, this this is going to be critical for that, you know, rollout of the vaccine in a very transparent way. And, you know, you talked about the burden in, in minorities, and I think that's certainly something that all of us are very interested on, on making sure that we properly address by making sure that the minority populations are included in the vaccine trials and our, the community gets engaged from the beginning. So I think that's something that an important lesson from HIV that we can apply to what we're doing right now. You make a very important point, Carlos, to get people to feel comfortable with taking a vaccine, you've got to make sure that demographically we have a very good representation of the people who you would hope would be getting the vaccine. And that includes the minority population. Because as we know, African-Americans, Latinx, and Native Americans not only have a higher incidence of actually getting infected, but they clearly have a great disparity of a disproportionately higher rate, incidence, and prevalence of the underlying comorbidities that make a bad outcome more likely in that population. So now thinking about, about treatments, you know, we have remdesivir, we have dexamethasone. I want to hear a little bit about your thoughts about, first of all, you know, broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies and that we're beginning to look at, but also about drugs that could potentially be oral antivirals. I mean, we really don't yet have anything that we can do and give in mild disease, right? Yep. That is the big gap. I think you nailed it right, the important thing. And that's the reason why there are so many studies going on now with monoclonal antibodies for both prevention as well as treatment for both outpatients and inpatients with early disease. It's to get that early disease that we need to do to prevent people from progressing to the need for hospitalization. We're also screening a bunch of small molecules with direct antiviral activity. And then there's convalescent plasma, and then there's the hyperimmune globulin that's derived from uh, convalescent plasma. Those are all the things that are being pursued with a heavy emphasis on early infection as opposed to late. There are also additional things we're doing for later uh, course of infection, namely a number of immune modulators as well as anticoagulants for the microthrombi and the thromboembolic phenomenon that we're seeing. So there's a lot of activity going on. It's really fantastic what's happening and how research is helping us understand this disease, but also, you know, manage it much, much better on a day-to-day basis. It's been amazing to see how quickly we've, we've really incorporated these things into guidelines, the IDSA guidelines, the NIH guidelines, and how very rapidly those guidelines are responding to available research. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a really good example of a mobilization of the scientific community, particularly within the arena of uh, microbiology and infectious diseases, but also other disciplines. So it's a cross-disciplinary biomedical research approach. 
So, Tony, you have a daughter who's a teacher, and, you know, right now everybody seems to be, like, every question I get is about reopening schools and reopening uh, colleges. And what is your feelings about it? What are, we, what are we missing and what are we ought to be doing? I don't think we're missing anything. It's just a question of judgment call. First of all, there's a big difference between opening a college or a university where people are coming in from all different parts of the country, living in dormitories to some extent. That's different than elementary, middle, and high school, which really reflects what's going on in a given community. So let's take the uh, latter first, namely the children in school. I believe, and many of my colleagues also, that a good default principle to be to try, try as best as you possibly can to keep children in school or to bring them into school because of the known deleterious effects psychologically and even physically on children when you isolate them and deprive them from going to school, as well as the downstream unintended ripple effects on families whose work schedule gets disrupted when the children are not in school and have to stay at home. There's a big however to that, Carlos, and the however is when you try to do that, you've got to make sure that the primary uh, concern that you pay attention to is the health, the safety, and the welfare of the children and the teachers and the spin-offs from those individuals. And since we live in a big country that is very heterogeneous in the level of infection, we sometimes characterize it as green zones, yellow zones, and red zones. There's metrics associated with them. One would say that if you have a very low level of infection in a green zone, you could probably open the schools with relative impunity in the sense of risk of infection. But you need to have in place what you do if you do get a child infected. When you get into the yellow zones where there's a degree of infection in the community, you may need to make some modifications like hybrid, part online, part in person, alternating classes, morning, afternoon, try outdoors, windows open, wearings of masks, and things like that, as well as protecting the vulnerable, both teachers and students, by having them actually be able to have an online access. But when you get in a red zone, uh, you know, that's um, over 100 cases per 100,000 population and greater than 10% positive, that is something that you really need to be careful of doesn't mean you absolutely can't do it, but you really better think twice before you just rush into that. The bottom line of it all is that we need to be flexible, and one size does not fit all, depending upon the level of infection. Tim O'Neill used to say, I guess, you know, all, all politics are local. Well, all COVID response is also local, and you need to look at your local epidemiology to make decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I think uh, society members, ID doctors across the professional spectrum, what do you think they need to be doing in their communities to help with the outbreak? I think they need to be the clarion callers of the things that, that we, and I know you and I have been doing that, talk about that a lot. And that is the fundamental principles of public health that we need to be encouraging universally. Wearing of masks, keeping physical and social distance, avoiding crowds, outdoor function, always preferable of indoor and if indoor, make sure you have a mask on, windows open where possible, and sanitary, sanitizing your hands, either with soap or water, 
or with these artificial sanitizers. And depending on where you are in the community, stay away from bars, indoor bars, and authorities where possible, and when one needs to, essentially close them, because they are the hot spots of spread. If we can do that, then we can come a long way to prevent outbreak and surges and to contain them when they occur. But also, in the sense of as a physician, as a healthcare provider, that we as infectious disease people need to be attuned to the protean manifestations of this. I mean, obviously, if someone can be taken care of at home, um, that's fine. But we also need to be able to study as infectious disease doctors. Some of the things that we're learning a lot about, like the prolonged symptomatology, what's the mechanism of that? Is that an inflammatory response? What is that? What about the situation where you have cardiovascular abnormalities as demonstrable on PET scans and MRIs, central nervous system abnormalities? Is that infection? Is that response to an infection? Or is that a nonspecific inflammatory response? There's an amazing amount of good research, good clinical research that can be done on this. As we're getting to the end of this, uh, this podcast, uh, Tony, I want to ask you a question from one ID physician to another. What message would you like to share with sort of the, the people considering entering infectious disease about our specialty? And what can we tell medical students, residents, and others about what we do? And what is your message to them? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm prejudiced because this is what I have been doing for all of my professional life, infectious diseases. But I think I can withdraw and try to be a little bit objective and say that anyone that looks at what's happened over the last few decades, take the amount of time that I've been director of this institute, 36 years, with HIV, Ebola, Zika, all of the other established diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, and now COVID. We started off with SARS, then MERS, and now COVID. I mean, I cannot think of any subspecialty of medicine that could possibly be more exciting, more challenging, more impactful than the discipline of infectious diseases. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for all of the other subspecialties, but I, as I said, uh, they're exciting, but I can't think of anything that's more exciting than the discipline of infectious diseases. We certainly agree on that. And I think on a daily basis, you wake up saying, what's new today? What's going to be, what's the challenge and what's the new infection and the new challenge we're going to have, which really keeps, gets us out of bed. But you managed to also, I mean, you're incredibly busy and I don't know how you do everything you do, but uh, I think we all enjoyed also watching you uh, throw the first pitch. So tell us about your love for baseball as we end this. <laughs> well, my love for baseball was not dampened by the disastrous pitch that I threw <laughs> on the first pitch. You know, it's, it's a funny story, Carlos, because I was throwing a day, two days before, because I hadn't picked up a baseball in so many years. I played baseball, you know, as, as a youngster, the way many of us have. And I kept on throwing, so my arm was hurting a bit. Uh, when I paced out how far I was throwing, I thought I was throwing from 60 feet, but I was actually throwing probably from about 40 to 45 feet. So when I went out onto the mound at Nat Stadium and I looked at Sean Doolittle, who was catching for me, he looked like he was about 500 feet away. <laughs> so I wound up and threw a bullet 
The only thing is that it bounced as opposed to reaching him. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it was still fun to, to watch it. And, and you know, obviously, uh, we think about professional sports, right, and baseball and all these things that really bring society together. And it's really interesting to see how the different leagues are looking at it and how are approaching it. But at the end of the day, it's it's hopefully we'll get back to a time where where sports will be back with public and with, with expect- spectators and in a normal time, and I think getting there is going to be exciting for all of us. Well, I want to end this podcast now, and I want to turn it over to Nadia to conclude it. And so, Nadia? Thank you, Dr. Del Rio. And Dr. Fauci, you'd be in my starting lineup any day of the week. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Fauci and Del Rio for their time, their expertise, and participation. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.